It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L. D. Azobra, and I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. Now, you know, we always keeping it rolling on this uh, with our podcast. We always have these great, interesting men and women who have done and still doing great things. And I want you to know we have another one here today. We got here a brother by the name of Conan Louis. That's right. That's correct. Welcome to Countdown. Thank you very much. He's from originally Trinidad. Trinidad. And Tobago. Trinidad and Tobago. I was born in Trinidad. Uh, We was at a major event. Few days ago, you flew. You came to where you where you from, right? Where you living? Uh, right? Living in Washington D.C. Now, you was in Washington D.C., but you came here a few days ago. What mm-hmm. brought you to you in Louisiana? You in New Orleans, Louisiana, right now? And I'm out here visiting with you to make sure I capture your podcast. So now, tell me, tell everybody what you're doing in Louisiana. Well, uh, the primary reason why I came uh, was uh, I'm a part of an organization called the Avery Croft Group. Um, and uh, we do um, management consulting, focusing on mostly fundraising. And um, we were here to uh, uh, do some work on behalf of Dr. Dr. Gabu Mendy, uh, who is here uh, in uh, New Orleans. Uh, Dr. Mendy uh, is working on a project that's designed to ostensibly transform the healthcare delivery system in the Gambia. And uh, so it's our task to help Dr. Mendy raise about $41 million uh, in an $80 million project to build uh, eight hospitals uh, in the Gambia. In the Gambia? Yes. That's one of my spots. I like the Gambia. I I traveled there twice. Yes. And Dr. Mendy and I, we do know each other. And I'm supposed to be getting with him regarding that project. Excellent. Well, that, that's the primary reason why I was here. But uh, also, several years ago, we did some work for um, the African, um, the River Road African American Museum. And uh, um, its founder uh, uh, was, had an event, uh, which is where I met you. Kathy Hamburg. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, we took some time to, to get there and, and check that out as well. And that, and that was really a great, great event. It really was. It was particularly great for me because uh, it focused on the 272 uh, enslaved uh, people who were sold by uh, the Jesuits from Georgetown University, uh, sold down here to uh, um, uh, Louisiana. I'm a three-time Georgetown graduate, School of Languages and Linguistics, 1973, the Graduate School, 1978, and the Georgetown University Law Center, uh, class of 1986. But uh, I'm also the former Associate Vice President for Alumni Relations at the university. So uh, that event had some significance for me. So now, were you still working there when they revealed this information? At that time, in 2017? No, I had already left Georgetown um, as a full-time employee, but I remained uh, then and as I am today a part of the alumni leadership of the university. I served on the uh, Board of Governors of the university, which is the governing body for the Georgetown University Alumni Association. Oh, okay, then. So, now, so you knew all that was happening 
why, why it was happening. That's right. And I'm very proud of the students because uh, they were the impetus uh, for bringing this to the attention of the university. Um, and uh, they were very clear that they, they wanted to see some action. And in very short order, uh, they got the president of the university to take a decision to take the names off of, off of a couple of buildings, take the, take the names of uh, uh, two Jesuits had been involved with the, uh, with the sale. Uh, and they renamed um, those two buildings uh, after uh, two of the enslaved who had been sold, two of the 272. Hmm. That's, oh, that's pretty interesting. And it was the students who did that. The students. The no students. one else but the students. The students. And they fought for... How did, I remember one young lady was behind who found information. How did they find come called Zithra? You know, I really, I should know, but I don't know the, um, the background of, of the story. Um, but I do know that it was the students who went to the president and said that, that they were very concerned about the fact that the university was honoring uh, these two Jesuits uh, who had been responsible for the sale uh, and that they insisted that the university uh, take their names off of those buildings. I don't think any of us expected that uh, after having those names removed that the, the buildings would then be renamed for two of the 272, but that's to the university's credit, I have to say I do have some pride in the institution. They could have sort of shrunk in the moment they didn't do that. Um, they faced it head on, and uh, there are still some issues, obviously, but uh, for the most part, I'm proud of the way that's right. I'm proud of the way the institution has handled it. Now, the, the thing that the Railroad African American Museum held this past weekend for Juneteenth weekend was very, it was a very sentimental type of thing. A lot of people didn't quite know the depth of really what was going on. Yeah. But why, why was this, was, was Kathy Hammock and River Road African American doing, River, River Road African American Museum was doing, was significant and important as far as you were concerned? Well, um, Kathy, as you know, is a, a wonderful historian and, and uh, museologist. For her to be the person doing this was significant because, as it turned out, She's a descendant of one of those 272 right. uh, enslaved uh, uh, African-Americans who were sold here. Um, so having worked with Kathy and helping the board of the River Road African-American Museum, actually we, we uh, helped them create their strategic plan um, and seeing you know, how, what a brilliant person she is um, and then finding out that she had this connection uh, with Georgetown. I remember when she came up, uh, when the university announced officially what it was doing, they invited all of the descendants of the 272, uh, and Kathy actually came and, and uh, uh, was part of that, uh, of that whole um, event. Uh, so uh, that dual connection uh, right. made this. You uh, traveled, oh, you know, you he sent me his resume, and I just looked at it and said, well, we ain't getting nothing, all this done, but we'll, get, we'll do what we can here. You have such a remarkable story in history. What did you arrive from, Tr from Trinidad? Uh, I came to the United States when I was five years old. Okay. Um, and I remember it poignantly because I remember stepping off the plane and seeing snow for the first time and having a sensation of being cold for the first time. <laughs> Don't get cold in Trinidad at all? <laughs> no, it does not get cold in Trinidad. Um, so, you know, and to this day, I cannot stand being cold. 
I mean, it's, you know. And, and, and where do you live in? Uh, I live in Washington, D.C. I grew up in New York. Um, so it was cold uh, for a good part of the year. Um, but uh, I, I keep the temperature pretty high in the house. <laughs> now, coming from Trinidad as a young, as a child, what, type, what brought your family to the United States? Well, my dad was an educator. Um, uh, he uh, taught French and Spanish in the New York City public schools for about 30 years before becoming one of the first, uh, if not the first, uh, black high school principal in New York. So he came to the United States. He went to um, the University of London uh, to get his undergraduate degree. And then he came to the United States to, uh, to attend uh, New York University, where he got his master's degree. So he was rolling like that. Yeah. Like yeah, my dad was an amazing human being. To this day, he's one of the smartest individuals I've ever met in my he's life. I lost him several years ago at the age of 83. But in addition to being absolutely brilliant, uh, he also spoke seven languages, um, and my, my sort of knack for language was inherited Did from you him. Speak I speak three languages, uh, Russian, French, and, and English. Now, uh, I, we got to get to Russia. I want to yeah. know how you get to that, but yeah. go ahead on. But uh, he was also a world-class athlete. Uh, he was a track athlete, um, he played soccer. Trinidad produced uh, a lot of He was guys. a judo master. I mean, he's just an amazing human being. And then on top of that, if that wasn't enough, uh, he had a voice like an angel. Yeah, he could sing, He too. could sing, yes. The brother could sing. sing. <laughs> yes, the brother could sing. Yes, he could. Man, yeah. that is amazing. Yeah. Now, how many brothers and sisters you had? I had one brother and two sisters. Unfortunately, lost one um, a few years ago. But I'm the oldest of four. All right, so you've been, you've been a good example. Well, I tried, set, to set the I tried to be. What I tried to be. What I've never been able to do is to reach uh, my father's heights or his expectations. You know, one of the best, greatest stories I like to tell about him was that, uh, you know, I'd bring home a 97 on a test, and his first question would be, what happened to the other three points? <laughs> <laughs> you kept you try, try, uh, striving. To, That's to exactly right. And, but that worked out good. You didn't get your feeling hurt. You no, feel, it was just it was motivating. It was motivating. So he, so he really connected with you and him. That, that, now that's a beautiful story. That's right. Again, you come from Trinidad and the islands. When y'all had a certain respect and reverence for your elders. Oh, absolutely. You know, that have, that and is, it, did, it didn't didn't have to be somebody a member of your family. Just the, anyone, yeah, anyone, any elder. You know, you had respect now for. Now, when I grew up, that was still in existence yeah. here. But they have slowly have eroded. Yeah. And, you know, so that's what makes it hard because you can't tell a child nothing anymore. Well, you can't tell my child because we, we raised her the same way. And she's 40 years old now. Um, but she has the same respect for elders that, uh, that we had growing up. Mm -hmm. I think it's just, a, it's, yes, you know, there are um, pressures on you that come from society and their peers and so forth. But, you know, we do have a, a significant role to play in, in how these kids are raised. And so we have the biggest role. That's exactly right. And so I think a lot of it has to do with um, not just the, the children and the way that uh, that society impacts them. But I think it's also the, the, the kind of parenting that that people are doing these days as well. Mm, well put. Well put. Now, your, your daughter, that's the only child that you have. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, you got to give her a name. She's going to be mad. And Maya. Say it again? Maya Louis. Maya Louis. Mm -hmm. Maya Noel Ariana Louis. No, no, that sounds like a little bit of Spanish too in there. 
<laughs> well, Noel was my dad's first name, so we, we okay. named her after him. Okay. Yeah. And you now you're still presently living in in DC. In DC, mm -hmm. you ain't going back to New York yet. No, actually, I was back in New York uh, a few years ago. Um, I went to take a job as uh, the director of development for uh, the uh, NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, LDF. Uh, so I did that for a while, and then I came back. Uh, I thought I'd taken my dream job, um, but then uh, not too long after I got there, my wife told me that uh, she had this great opportunity, and uh, you know, when you're married to these high-powered black women, um, <laughs> so I ended up coming back. The opportunity was, was better. Huh? You, got, you got your dream job, she yeah. got hers too. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, she's a, a Wharton MBA graduate of the, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. She's a banker, and she had an opportunity well, you to... Gonna follow, you going to follow the money then. <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> you got to follow your banker then. That's you got to right. keep a good relationship with your banker. That's right, that's right. That's pretty good. Now, yeah. where is she from? Uh, she's a third-generation Washingtonian, born and raised in Washington, D.C. Well, she's from there. Yeah. She grew up there. Mm -hmm. You want to say her name? Oh, it's Gail. Gail Michelle Louis. Oh, Louis yeah. again. Huh? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what, what, what's her maiden name? Gillis. Gillis. Yeah. yeah we got Gillis in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. uh, what does she Ladies, Gillis. But right I here. think her people are from Virginia. Virginia that's where from Southern grew up Virginia. In yeah. Well, well, she grew up in D.C., but her, her, her father's people. I think her father's native Washingtonian as well, but her father's people are from um, well, from know, Virginia. But that's where most of us arrived at. Now, now what about your mom? Now, what, you got to get poor mom. Yeah, right? my mom. She had to feed you. She was something else. <laughs> <laughs> mom was a registered nurse. Okay. Um, five foot and a half inch. You didn't want to mess with her. You didn't want to mess with her. My dad was, the, you know, this, like I said, judo master, great athlete and all that, you know, high school principal. So, you know, you were, I, certainly I was afraid of him. But the person I was more afraid of was my mom. The living woman, That's right. Because she didn't play, though. Oh, man, she was a tornado. <laughs> that is pretty. Now, when you moved in, moved from the Trinidad, Trinidad to uh, New York, mm -hmm. there was a lot of other families moving in at that time. There was a uh, movement going on by the Trinidad. Yeah, I think there were certainly a, a, a number of, of people. Because um, you spoke French at that time. Well, no. Um, you speaking English. I was speak English is the. Um, uh, is the sort of lingua franca, the, the language that most people speak in, in Trinidad. Um, well, everyone speaks English. And there's not a lot of French speaking there, but I, for me, uh, first of all, my ancestors were actually from Martinique and then went from Martinique to Trinidad. So that's, that's why the, the French really comes from, from Martinique. And, and, and they, don't, they didn't come straight from Africa like they told Right. What did they produce in Trinidad? What kind of work? Uh, well, uh, sugar is one of the, the, sugar the major sugarcane, and uh, actually um, oil, bauxite, and I mean, oil and aluminum uh, bauxite. Um, are the it's sugar, oil, and uh, aluminum are the were the sort of major um, exports uh, from Trinidad. Hmm. Now, okay, when you was thinking, all right, you coming out of what high school you went to? I went to a place called Archbishop Malloy High School in Queens, New York. That's not one of Catholic schools? It's a Catholic school, 
Uh, now, how can a brother go to a Catholic school in New York? Um, well, because my folks were Catholic. Uh, I went to Catholic schools all my life from elementary school. And uh, Malloy uh, was one of the top academic high schools in New York. And uh, I happened to inherit some smarts from my, my parents. Uh, and uh, my best friend and I actually were the only two African-Americans who graduated in our graduating class in 1969. The only two? Mm-hmm. They had more at the Out school. of, there were, there were 400, I mean, no, there were 300 and, about 386 in my graduating class. Uh, all boys, it was an all boys school back then. It's co-ed now. Um, That's a big old graduating class. Yeah, there were 386, and uh, of those, two of us were African-American. Two. When we started in freshman year, there were three of us. One left right after the end of first semester. Now, how you end up from New York, I mean, to D.C.? Um, well, I went to D.C. to attend Georgetown University uh, uh, undergrad. You, got a, you had a scholarship? Uh, I did not have a scholarship. Uh, my my, I was told my parents made too much money for me to get a scholarship back then. You know, uh, a lot of scholarships were need needs based, um, and so I wasn't able to get uh, a scholarship to Georgetown. And I, I and academically, I wasn't a superstar, so I wasn't going to get a, um, I wasn't get going to get a, um, a merit based scholarship. Well, you graduated, but you didn't graduate in the top. I graduated in high school, probably about the middle of my class. Um, but as I said, it was one of the top academic high schools in New York, so um, I have no shame in, in <laughs> being in the middle. Now, my best friend graduated, I think, number seven in our class. He went on to MIT. Now, what was his name? Uh, Walter Gibbons. Um, and Walt, uh, uh, another one of these uh, incredible people. He was, uh, as I said, graduated in the top 10 in our class, and um, he was also the third best high jumper in New York. Went on to, um, uh, to MIT, and uh, at MIT, excelled there, uh, excelled at MIT both uh, academically and athletically. He held the high jump record um, in, uh, at MIT for probably about 30 years. Hold on now. Now you see, your dad was a great athlete. Now you bring it on your friend. Oh, what yeah. kind of athlete were you? Well, um, I'd like to say that I was a decent athlete. My claim to fame is that my high school track coach, who also happened to be my college track coach, we ended up uh, going to Georgetown together. Frank Rienzo was his name. Uh, Frank, along with Dave Gavitt, was one of the founders of the Big East Conference. Okay. Um, they hired Frank as the uh, uh, head track coach, and then, and then two years, yes, definitely, and then two years later, they appointed him uh, to be athletic director, and he was the one who hired John Thompson to be the huh? head basketball great, coach, great first coach. black basketball See? coach at a predominantly white institution yeah. in the United States, and the first one to win it. No, he only won one, won one. Okay. but he was the first African-American to win a, an NCAA championship in, in basketball. Uh, but anyway, Frank was a great coach. Uh, we were city champions in, uh, in track and field for 10 years in a row. People hated us. 10 years in a row? 10 years in a row. Um, and I started this whole story to say that um, I, had a, I had my 50th birthday party, and, uh, or was it my 60th? But anyway, I had this party and Frank came to the house and uh, there were speeches, of course. 
And my claim to fame is that Frank Rienzo said to about 75 people in the room, he said uh, he was a great athlete. You left it like that? Uh, yeah. Well, no, I mean, he, he said a little bit more, but uh, that's good, to me, see. that's what I heard. Yeah, but that, you know, that was great. You know, one, of the, one, of the, one of the best but, high school and college track coaches uh, in the nation. I was it. really proud of that. I would not describe myself that way. Yeah, now, what, what did you do in the track and field? What, what areas? Um, well, in high school, I actually, I actually ran the four by one and I, I long jumped, but my best season was always cross country. In college, uh, again, cross country was my best season, and, uh, and I ran the two mile. And my times were not good enough to make me any kind of a champion. Um, they were competitive, that was about it. But, uh, but for Frank to refer to me as a great athlete uh, meant a lot to me. It stuck out your chest. Didn't yeah, that's right. This, this is my point. That's right. That's <laughs> y'all, y'all, y'all heard what Frank said. That's right. <laughs> if anybody know Frank said no, but that, that had to make it, had to make you feel good. It really did. It Just really did. To take the time to come to your party and to speak that. Yeah. Yeah. But athletics was always a real important part of my life. Uh, I guess because of my dad, uh, I remember watching the Olympics with him. Uh, and in particular, the, the 1968 Olympics when Bob Beeman just shattered the world record in the long jump. Um, that was my event, and uh, sitting there watching it with my dad, you know, in real time watching that happen was uh, one of the, the joys of my life. You come from a heck of a background. So, I mean, anytime you speak of your father as the man that you see him that's what's more important anyway yeah like he was he man. was my role model there's yeah. no question about it and that's you know we all have to tip our head off to your father and for you to follow in that and keep it going and like this my first met i tell him i just met you a couple of days ago yeah and when i when i met you i heard you say a few words and when i when i walked up to you i can't actually take a picture of you and, her body and uh, sign. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I, just, I like this brother. <laughs> Can't tell you why now. But it's just, it's, it's your aura, you know, where you handle yourself. Very professional, very respectful, just malleable. And I didn't, and I still don't hear that, uh, that Trinidad accent. Well, you could hear it if you want to hear it. I can, <laughs> I can use it at any point. So you're versatile, you know? But I forgot, you're a linguistic. I'm a linguistic chameleon. I can... Now, now, now tell everybody who, who, who's not as educated as you are. <laughs> what is linguistic? What, what is a degree in linguistics? Well, linguistics is a scientific study of language. Um, and so it's all about, uh, you know, what we call meta-language, language about language. So, for example, uh, in addition to just studying, you know, grammar, um, um, we're also looking at, you know, how language changes, how it's used in social context, and how the linguistic context can actually change the meaning of the same word, or uh, the way that uh, uh, that you speak can either ingratiate you to someone or uh, they could make you hate them oh. or make them hate you, I should say, um, just because of language. No, other words, like you said, that's power in words. Exactly. Words give you life or they carry death. Yeah. One of the, a, a good example is uh, when I was in graduate school, uh, my, my undergraduate degree is in applied linguistics. But my graduate degree is in sociolinguistics, and just as linguistics is a scientific study of language, 
sociolinguistics is uh, about the use of language in, in uh, sociocultural context. Um, and so I, in graduate school, I focused on two areas of research. One was uh, teaching black children to read from a language difference point of view. Um, and the kind of thing that we did at that point was to uh, utilize what we now call vernacular black English. Not, not, not uh, what do you call that? Hebrew, what do you call that? Ebonics. Ebonics, yeah, okay. Um, to utilize that as a tool for teaching standard English. Um, so that was one of the areas of research uh, that I focused on. The other focus, uh, research focus that I had was on language problems in developing nations. And so, for example, I focused on the situation in South Africa, which is really, really interesting uh, because at that time, this is in the 70s when I was in graduate school, um, you had um, a population where 15% of the speakers uh, spoke English, 15% spoke Afrikaans, and the remaining 70% spoke seven different mutually unintelligible Bantu languages. And the 15% who were the Afrikaners ruled everything. So it was a really interesting situation for me to, to take a look at. I mean, I like the way you brought that forward. <clears throat> and the, the 15% make sure that Make sure that y'all can keep y'all seven different languages. Yeah. We're going to use this one here. Divide and conquer. Yeah, yeah you're going to speak my language. Yeah. If you can't, it's too bad for you. Right. But I have to believe that our children, our people, are the master of languages. Mm -hmm. Because we have a way of taking words and applying them to things that people include. Like, we might say, I'm just chilling. Mm -hmm. Well, to some other folks, that might mean cold. That's right. <laughs> that's right. We mean we just sitting here taking it easy. We ain't in no hurry for nothing. That's so right. So that's the creativity. Mm -hmm. How we, our, our people, we just can do this. We just, I mean, you can hear it in the rap music more so than anything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they take words and you know, give it a whole, and and that's what have lost other the other people. Now they cut. They working to catch up. You know, because they studied because of social media. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of learning the language, yeah. but by the time they learn that, we'd have moved just like our dance. Yeah, yeah. By the time you want to learn that, we'd have moved those. That's exactly there. right. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that you would would uh, raise the issue of rap music because um, uh, I, I actually at one point focused on rap as part of. A, I was working on a, a study of writing in non-school settings um, with a group of uh, high school 11th and 12th graders in North Central Philadelphia and their teachers. And the purpose of this was we spent, uh, it was an 18 month study, we spent six months in the community just collecting artifacts and doing participant observation, hanging out with, with 11th and 12th graders. I played a lot of basketball, um, went to a lot of parties, went bowling, um, and we wanted to know what do they write, when do they write, why do they write? and to uh, just collect those artifacts and analyze what they were writing for the purpose of creating pedagogical strategies, working with their teachers. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Ped or what? Pedagogical strategies, okay, teaching, teaching, okay, uh, strategies for okay, teaching. Everybody, linguistic, that's going on. So, um, as I said, we were collecting artifacts and what we learned, this was um, in the late 
70s. Oh, in the 70s. Um, and uh, it was just about the time when uh, rap music was just beginning to become commercially successful. And so, for example, you had Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, um, Curtis Blow, um, and all those folks, uh, you know, LL Cool J, uh, those folks. Um, and so we heard, we heard these kids listening to rap music and as part of the, uh, as the research, we found that uh, the things that they were writing included rap lyrics. Some of them had notebooks filled with rap lyrics mm. that included uh, things that they had heard, but uh, sort of embellished with their own personal stuff. And some of them were really, really good. So we ended up using uh, what they were writing as a way of sort of figuring out how they could better be taught in the classroom. Um, and a good example of this, this is one of my favorite stories to tell. So we're sitting in the classroom one day and the teacher is, the students are reading Romeo and Juliet. The teacher, and this is North Central Philadelphia, you know, kids from the hood. And so the teacher had one of the students read a passage uh, and then she said, now, Put the book down. I want you to tell me in your own words what just happened. And this is what the student said. Mercutio's busting on Benvolio. <laughs> and that's exactly what was happening. That's exactly what was happening. That's right. So what we did was we showed them that in these rap lyrics, you and these artists are using the same literary devices that Shakespeare used. A simile, you know, simile, um, a metaphor, uh, all the, the same kinds of, of what they call literary devices uh, that, that you are used in Shakespeare, you can find in your own writing. And by, that, by doing that, we got them to be even more engaged because they were looking for this stuff. You know, what did Shakespeare do that's the same thing that I'm doing? And I want to find that in his writing. Well, that's, and so that's, that's a good observation because that's what it, I believe. And I don't want to get into the religion, but that's what the church have missed it. And, you know, the Jesus of old is not the same as today. Yeah, right. When you making con connections, yeah, you know, Jesus is the same today and forever. Yeah, but when you make when you talking to another group of children with a language, mm -hmm. it's not quite the same, right? And it's, it's not being, they don't, they're not forced to accept it. You know, when I was in school, I was kind of like, you, know, you had to kind of stay, the, the teacher says this, where I don't know no better. Mm -hmm. Like I told you earlier, when I took a trip out of the country, I, I found out different yeah. on some things. But, but the preachers have not made the Bible relevant, nor have they used it in a way to make the youth want to be a part of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's old stuff. Man. And the thing is that, you know, the same lessons that we learned uh, can be used uh, in, that, in that context because the stories in the Bible, are, you know, that, that the, what the lessons that you learn are, are lessons for today. Lessons so it's today. just a matter of, you know, making that, that link, you know? Um, you know a, another example of something that we did successfully was that at the beginning of this 
period um, when after the six months in the in the community when we were actually working with the teachers to create the the teaching strategies the students were required to write at the end of the term a paper on anything they wanted well one of the students actually somehow got a hold of Julius Irving and interviewed Julius Irving and and this this it was a girl she wrote a 10-page paper on Julius Irving now if you had asked her to write a 10-page paper at the beginning of, of that uh, term she would have looked at you like you were from Mars Ten pages, that's a, that's 10 pages. Uh, that's and that was one of the things that we found as a result of our research that using these these uh, pedagogical strategies which take students where you find them and using tools from their own lives um, and, and using them as a way of teaching them these formal formalities of language and so forth and, and how to write. We found that uh, at the beginning they were writing, you know, you couldn't get them to write more than a few sentences. By the end of the term they were writing pages. Because they made that connection. They made that connection. It was all about stuff that was relevant to them, stuff that they saw every day in their lives. Um, and I think it's a similar kind of uh, uh, thing that you can do in any context. Now, I'm going to ask this question to an educator like yourself. <clears throat> I'm let the truth be told. Do you think this system even care if the children can read or write? It depends on how you define the system. When I say the system, the education system is to prepare you to work for workforce that they have, not the workforce that you want to do. My children, when they got to elementary school, mm -hmm. they didn't. They never wrote cursive, what we call yeah, cursive. Cursive, right? yeah. And I one day I just asked myself, why y'all keep printing, y'all? Oh, they don't teach that. Well, cursive. At first, I didn't know what it meant, and I'm thinking. So it went on for several years, and finally I realized what was going on. The reason they're not writing cursive, because they want to get you in the system. The system is, the computer got to be able to read what you do. Yeah. So they want you to type a letter where they can, if you write cursive, everybody writes differently. Yeah. And so it's harder for the, any kind of software to read yeah. cursive writing. Yeah. So they was getting them ready for the, the system today. That, that's exactly right. But you know, that's part of a movement within education, American education, that has now, I think, been discredited. Um, it was part of something called whole language, where I could not believe this, that uh, they were not teaching children phonics. They stopped teaching phonics because they came up with this idea of whole language that, you know, you just, you teach them a word um, and you teach them how to pronounce the word. Um, but the fact is that phonics are the building blocks of words. Um, and if you had any kind of training in linguistics, the scientific study of language, mm. there's no way that you would allow the educational system not to teach phonics. You know, to, to understand that, that A is for apple, right? That, that, that A may be pronounced A or may be pronounced A. And that there are different actual, uh, different uh, phonetic symbols for each of those pronunciations of the letter A. They weren't teaching kids that. And, and it's been recently that they decided that, you know, that was folly. 
to decide not to teach phonics, that was not a good idea. So there's this whole generation of kids who came up not learning phonics the way that you and I did. Uh, they had this whole language stuff, and, and then you wonder why they can't read. It's just well, amazing. That goes to my question again. That's just happened that way, or was this calculated? Well, I mean, I, I would like to think that it's not calculated, yeah, um, like that it was that. merely an error. Yeah. Like all uh, other errors over, uh, over the hundreds of years. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the Jesuit, the John Thau, the Jesuit But of course, the, res the result is the same, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We always That's right. at the bottom of, of, That's their, right. of their That's right. good intentions. Yeah. They can do the exact same thing with critical race theory. Whatever, they don't come up with that. I mean, they don't go crazy about this. So they're now saying that, you know, we can't talk about slavery. We can't talk about the oppression of uh, Jim Crow. How bad they treated us. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and you know what they say, those who do not study history are bound to repeat it. Um, but this whole movement might right now of so-called critical race theory is really fascinating to me because, and it's, 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 it's sort of in, in tune with some things that have been happening throughout the years, but now it's in your face. You know, a lot of people don't know that, you know, we, we have this great debate about guns, right? A lot of people don't know that uh, legislation was passed several years ago. We actually have a law that prohibits the federal government from collecting data on gun deaths in the United States. They're not allowed to collect data. I mean, if you can't collect data, how can you solve any problem? I mean, you have to analyze a problem in order to be able to solve it. There's no solution where there's no analysis. But that's, there is a law on the books that prohibits the United States from, government from collecting data on gun deaths. I wonder who put that law there. Well, Republicans did, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the gun lobby, the gun lobby, you know. Um, but now we've gotten to the point where, you know, there's in, in Florida, there's, there's a so-called don't say gay law you know, where you, you can't talk about uh, um, uh, differences in, in gender um, in the classroom uh, at, on any level. Uh, and it's just ridiculous. But that's, you know, if you, if you keep information away from people, it inures to the detriment, really, of everyone, uh, both the oppressed and the oppressors. But that's the direction that we're headed in right now. Well, that's where you and I are different. We've been in that direction. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never know we changed that. Well, let, let's just say uh, uh, it, it's, it's been catalyzed by. Uh, oh, no, I, I got to apologize to you, my brother. Let me, <laughs> let me apologize if I can. But, um, but listen to a man with that level of education like yourself. It's in the way you articulate. Georgetown did a great job, I must say, and your dad. I would love to hear you sit and debate 
the scholars on that level. Because, mm -hmm. you know, me, I, I'm a, I might go to fuss, I don't cuss. But <laughs> I, I, and I might use some bad oh, I, oh, different I, language. I'm going to cuss now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some but, things that just, you know, I, I just, it's just so ignorant, I can't even begin. And when I say ignorant, I mean ignorant in the way my Trinidadian mother used to use the word ignorant. Okay. How did Trinidad mother use it? Ignorant was a synonym for stupid. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. I, I had two, two, two close, close friends who I had a conversation with a few weeks back. They told me that they had fell out with their brother. Mm -hmm. I don't talk to him no more. You don't talk to your brother, but. He done gone crazy. He be post all that crazy stuff on the thing. I said, well, I saw it. I kind of like some of it myself. <laughs> yeah. You like that stuff? Yeah. Then he started talking about Trump. He gone crazy, thinking about being Trump. And then blah, 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 with the, the Republicans. I said, well, hold on. You just fell out over your brother, over Trump and Biden. Y'all fell, fell out over who going to be your slave master? Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> you know? um, that, that's, that is the case. Who, I've you, seen it. Time you, and time again. Two of us fighting over who gonna be, which one we gonna rule over you. Now that's interesting to me. <laughs> you done got to that place. Yeah. We done come to that place where that's, we we fight each other unfortunately, over. Unfortunately, that's where we over are. Over which one gonna rule over you? Yeah. Now that's truly divide that country. That's exactly right. So that's I, I hate to throw that in. No, it's it's <laughs> it's very relevant. I mean. You look at what's going on today, there's, there's no question. And because I've heard that story in so many families um, where there's that, that, that rift uh, all over the politics that we have that are so divisive in this country right now. Uh, the issue that I have is that I have no problem having you know, a, a, a debate or a discussion uh, about politics. But the issue that I have with our politics today is that there has to be some understanding of what's truth, what's true, um, and what are facts. You know, if we can't look out the window right now and agree that the sun is shining and that it's not, in fact, snowing, then I don't understand how we have a basis to have any kind of a conversation about anything. But yet, that's where we are. For example, if you look at, at uh, the uh, the way that, that what happened on January 6th is being treated. You have one group of people who believe that all that was, was, what did they call it? Um, ordinary political expression. Right, right, we just excised our rights. Right, that's all it is. Um, and when it's in fact far from that, you have people who actually stormed the Capitol, uh, they ransacked the place, uh, they attacked police officers. How is that ordinary political expression? But that only works for them. Exactly. Any other group of people. That's right. Uh, the outcome that's I right. doubt that's right. would have been the same. That's right. Because they feel they stormed this country before. <laughs> yeah. Then they had the Civil War where they fought over. But at, but at least it was grounded in, in fact and reality because the fact was they were being oppressed by the, the English king. Um, and, they, and they wanted to get away from that. They wanted to be the masters of their own destiny. But if you're going to tell me that walking into the Capitol and trying forcibly to get uh, uh, the United States Congress to do something 
to, to make a decision, a political decision, based on the fact that you're uh, invoking fear in them uh, for their lives, that's called insurrection. Right. And if you look it up in the dictionary, that's exactly what it's going to say. Insurrection for anybody, it don't, the same rules don't apply to the folks. But what I learned more than anything that day, I learned freedom is not free. That's exactly right. If you want it to free, you got to fight for it. Yeah. Two things I, I like to say. One is freedom is not free. The other is that freedom is not a commodity, it's a process. Mm, not a commodity, right. We have to continue to fight for that freedom every single day. Every single day. Mm, that's pretty good, yeah. Hey, I don't want to take up our time and your time on the insurrection. That yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know that's where you live at, and you got a concern. You wouldn't have been fighting with them too, huh? <laughs> So let's go, let's move forward with some of the, the greatness of uh, Coney Louis and all your great things that you have done and still doing. What is something, share something with me that you think that, you know, one of your greatest accomplishments that you say, I never would have thought I'd be here, I'd be doing. You told me the NAACP was one of your mm -hmm. best jobs. The Legal Defense Fund. Legal Defense Fund, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, but what are some other things that you, that you, as a young boy coming from Trinidad, New York, all of a sudden you have risen to, to greater height? Well, one of my favorite stories to tell is uh, um, I did well enough in law school um, that I uh, made law review um, and um, ended up at uh, one of the top law firms in, in the country. It was a firm called uh, Finley Cumble, Wagner, Heine, Underberg, Manley, Meyerson, and Casey. It was known as Finley Cumble, and it was at, at the time actually the second largest law firm in the world. In the world? In the world. Not the U.S.? Yeah. Um, and um, I, I went uh, to work in their international and legislative department, uh, practiced international law. We represented foreign governments and foreign corporations on the Hill. Uh, I did a lot of international trade transactions, but um, a lot of you know, international trade policy kind of stuff. One piece, one matter that I, I, uh, is most poignant in my mind is <clears throat> we represented the government of Antigua and Barbuda. In, uh, Not Barbuda. Barbuda. Yeah, it's just like Trinidad and Tobago, Antigua and Barbuda. Um, Antigua for short. Um, and uh, there was an illegal transshipment of arms and ammunition uh, that originated in Israel, uh, was transshipped through Antigua, and ended up in the hands of the Medellin cartel in Colombia. One of the weapons was actually used in the assassination of Carlos Galan, who would have been the next president of Colombia had he not been assassinated. And so I remember sitting in the office of my client, who at the time was the deputy prime minister of the country. He later went on to become the prime minister. Um, and so I'm sitting in his office, and he gets this call, emergency cabinet meeting, the prime minister wants you here right away. So he tells me that he's going to this meeting, and then he says, and you're coming with me. And so, I get up and follow him to his door. He puts his hand on the knob, then turns around to me and he says, you protect my ass. <laughs> so we walk into the room. 
I'm the only person in there who's not a member of the cabinet other than the, the woman taking notes. And everybody's looking at me like, who is he and what is he doing here? This is a serious meeting. This is a serious meeting. Um, but I knew that it was about this gun running stuff. And, you know, I'm his lawyer. And so um, he just says to everybody in the room, including the prime minister, says, this is my lawyer. And he beckons me to sit down. And I did. And yes, I did protect his ass. Uh, um, and, but, but, uh, oh, no, as wrong as it it was he was on the wrong side no as it turned out he was not on the wrong okay. side because um there was it was a uh, as i said he was the deputy prime minister and he was actually the, the foreign minister so you know he was clearly one of the uh the suspects um but as it turned out the person who was actually responsible for it was not him but his brother who was actually the um uh, the defense minister. His brother? Yeah. Did he know that at that time? No, he didn't know that at the time, but that's what the investigation actually uh, uh, turned out. Um, so, you know, that's pretty rarefied air when you've got uh, someone who's soon to be the head of state um, telling you that, uh, you know, it's up to you. You got to make sure that, uh, you know, I don't get caught up in all of this stuff. Um, so and he, he still risen to power. Yes, because you protected him. Yes. So he still look up to you. Look for. Well, I'll put it this way. I, I went. Uh, I went back to Antigua on vacation uh, years later, um, and I called his office because uh, I wanted to pay re respects. Uh, you can't come to the man's country without, you know, uh, letting him know you're here and, you know, so forth. And um, uh, so I walk into his office and, you know, he's sitting there with, with a couple of people and he looks up at me and says, the inimitable Conan Louis. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Huh? But I want to tell you about an experience that uh, I'm most proud of. Um, uh, as you know, I, I attended Georgetown University Law Center, um, and as I indicated, I was fortunate enough to make law review there. And um, in my year, now interestingly, Georgetown actually graduates more African-American lawyers than any other institution in the United States, with the exception of Howard University. And each year they may graduate maybe three more than we do. Um, there were like 66 African-Americans in my graduating class at Georgetown Law. 66? Of course, it's the largest law school in the country, oh, too. Okay. Um, but uh, m m my year, when it came time for law review, there are two ways you can get on law review. You can have grades in the top 10% of the class, or you can excel in the writing competition. I didn't quite have the grades in the top 10% of the class, but one thing I can do, you know, like George Gervin says, one thing I could do is fangaral. One thing I can do is write. Um, and so um, I was one of uh, three African-Americans in my class who made law review. And the following year, I was the notes and comments, senior notes and comments editor of the law review, the International, Georgetown International Law Journal. I held a seminar in which I invited um, all of the first year, all the black first year students. And I had, there were four journals at the time, the Georgetown Law Journal, um, Law and Policy and International Business, which was my journal, the International Journal. It was a journal called The Tax Lawyer and a journal called The American Criminal Law Review. And I had the editors-in-chief of all four journals uh, come to this seminar 
um, and talk about what they were looking for um, in the writing competition. You know, how, what, what makes for a good note or comment. And then for the next 30 minutes, for the next 45 minutes, that took about 45 minutes. For the next 45 minutes, I stood up in the room and went through the mechanics of how you write a note or comment. And the following year, there were 20 African-Americans who made law review. So your, the one seminar impact that many. And that's, that's probably one of the proudest things that I've ever done yeah, in my you life. You need to be, it should be. I mean, that's on a whole nother level. Yeah. Since then, have that continued to excel or? They've continued to excel. Um, uh, there's been some form of that, that seminar that's been done by the Black Law Students Association. And um, uh, there's, if you go to Georgetown today, in fact, the editor-in-chief of the Georgetown Law, Law Journal, the main journal, the top journal, with only 5% of the, of the class academically and the best writers uh, make Maine Journal. The editor-in-chief of Maine Journal this year was an African-American. Just like Barack was editor-in-chief of the Harvard Law Journal, this, this, young, um, man. this young man was, was the editor-in-chief of the Georgetown Law Journal. First time in his, in his history? Yeah, I think so. Now, when you made the law review, you was one of the few for the first time in the history of Georgetown? Well, there were, in the class ahead of me, there were two African-Americans who made journal. And one of them was Mike Jones, uh, who's at Kirkland & Ellis now. He's a partner at Kirkland & Ellis. Um, and uh, he, he was on the main journal. Um, and then there was a, a woman by the name of Devaris Curry, became a brilliant lawyer, um, and she, she made law review as well. Um, and then I think from the class before that, uh, there was one person, one black person on, on, who made law review. Now I can tell you, you enjoy your work as an attorney. Yeah. And, but your focus mainly is International trade and fundraising. Uh, well, right now, um, uh, I'm no longer at the big firm. Um, as indicated, I'm, I'm working with uh, uh, the Avery Croft Group is one of the one of the things that I do. Yeah, um, yeah, um, <clears throat> and um, it's sort of part of the work that I do. Also, is I have my own firm as well called CNL Solutions, um, and we do. Now, who is your partner? Um, well, I, it's a, it, the CNL Solutions itself is actually a, um, um, uh, I, I'm the only person okay. working there, but with uh, Avery Croft, uh, I'm with Alta Canada, um, who has lots of roots here uh, in New Orleans, um, and uh, Alta's an incredible, incredible partner, incredible person. It, 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 it sounds like a man name, but it's a female. Yeah, so it's a, it's, it's a female. Very energetic. It's very energetic. I'll describe her this way, um, as the most competent professional I know. When I became vice president for advancement at Howard University, um, she was the first person I hired. She served as uh, director of corporate relations at Howard University. She was responsible for engineering what at the time was the largest gift uh, ever received by the university. It was a $5 million gift uh, from Eli Lilly. But it wasn't so much the gift, it was the relationship that she was able to nurture, uh, where they not only gave the gift, but they also 
create an opportunity for joint R&D between their scientists and members of Howard's faculty. What are these days? Um, research and development. Okay. And then they also agreed to, uh, uh, to create a program where they would hire Howard students to, at Eli Lilly. So that whole relationship, that was all engineered by Alta. And um, she's the type of person that, you know, I always say, if you want something done, just ask Alta to do it. Guarantee it'll get done. <laughs> Guaranteed. Huh? Guaranteed. Guaranteed results. Huh? Guaranteed. And this was back in, uh, let's see, 19, 1998 was when I went to Howard. Uh, did you, you have attended Howard or you just worked there? No, I just worked there. I actually attended Georgetown, a three-time graduate of Georgetown, and I was the alumni director. I was the um, associate vice president for alumni relations there, uh, and then was recruited um, to, uh, to be the vice president for advancement at Howard. Did you plan this out or did it just happen for you? I've never planned anything out when it comes to my career. Um, I've always, literally, I've always, except after I decided to go to law school, then I made affirmative decisions about, you know, what kind of law I wanted to practice and where I, I thought I wanted to, to work and so forth. But other than that, everything else in my life has been a matter of uh, having opportunities placed in my path and being able to take advantage of those opportunities. Uh, you know, if you had asked me, you know, two months before I ended up at Howard, if I thought that I would be the vice president for advancement at Howard, I would have said no. Um, and I'd say the same thing about virtually every other position that I've held, with the exception of leaving law school to, to go to a major law firm. You know, it's, it's interesting because I'm a great planner. I've done strategic planning for all kinds that's of organizations. That's why you're in action, because that's what you're allowed to work. Yeah, but I'm more, in terms of my personal development, I'm more ethnographic. You know, that participant observation, that's that linguistics and anthropology background. Um, you know, I just, I, I like to get into a situation, scope it out, um, and then depending on, you know, which way I see it going, um, I may move in one direction or another. So you're saying your gifts have made a way for you. Yeah. Strategic thinking and thought process had to help in a way too. Well, yeah, it does because it, it helps. It helps in making a decision once an opportunity is presented itself. Right. Uh, then I can think strategically about, you know, whether it makes I, sense to do this. Yeah. Or not. I, now that's something that, okay, you say you was an average student, a little bit of average student. You end up in... Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I have to say that the reason why I was an average student was because I was a lazy student <laughs> until law school. Until law school. When I got to law school, I decided, you know what? Um, my teachers have always thought, you know, boy, he's got some smarts. And, you know, uh, as a matter of fact, I remember in, I think it was sixth grade, I was at a parent-teacher conference with my parents. And uh, my teacher said to uh, my parents, it'd be interesting to see what he could do if he bothered to open the book. So <laughs> the teachers already knew. Yeah. So when I, got to, uh, when I got to law school, I made an affirmative decision. Okay, let's see what will happen if I open the book. Um, and that's why I ended up making law review. Now, where did becoming a lawyer play in? Is it your dad was, was educated, mm -hmm. your mom was a nurse? Yeah, yeah. Well, I have this kind of gift of gab. 
And uh, for years, uh, people would say to me, you know, you really should think about going to law school. Not, uh, not, not, not being a preacher. Huh? No. Because most of the But uh, yeah, people kept saying to me, you really should think about law school. And I, my response was always, you have to be like a serious student to go to law school. I'm not that kind of a student. <laughs> Um, and I don't know, um, one day I just decided, you know what, because um, I was doing social science research. I, uh, I did the, uh, I was talking to you about the, the, the research that ended, had me end up uh, focusing on rap. That was a, <coughs> a, um, an ethnographic study of writing in non-school settings. I did research uh, in criminal justice. Um, and drug abuse. Uh, I just decided, you know, I've been doing all this research and stuff and, you know, and that's great. And it's a wonderful academic um, and intellectual exercise. But I want to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And being a lawyer, I think, equips you to make a difference. And it's interesting, I, I, it actually bore out because people look at you differently when they know you're a lawyer. They really do. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I made that decision because I was always about the struggle. Uh, I mean, even when I was practicing law at a major law firm, doing international trade and transactions, my first year at the law firm, um, there was a, uh, a student at the University of Maryland um, who sued the University of Maryland because he didn't get in. Uh, actually, I said he was a student. He was a student who was attempting to go to the University of Maryland, who didn't, he, he, he didn't, he wasn't admitted. And he sued the university claiming that the reason why he didn't get in was because of affirmative action. Um, and it actually was uh, one of the cases uh, that one of the progeny, one of the cases that followed the Baki case um, uh, that dealt with uh, race-based scholarships. Because what this guy said was that uh, it was unconstitutional for uh, any institution to give scholarships on the basis of race. Um, and I remember walking, to, walking into the partner, one of the partner's office, uh, actually the managing partner's office, and saying, you know, I want to I do something about this. I want to help about this. And I ended up writing a, what's called an, an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief, on behalf of the Legal Defense Fund. Uh, years later, uh, I would go to work for the, the Legal Defense Fund as their director of development. But this was when I was in law school, I mean after law school when I was working um, at uh, Finley Cumble, and um, ended up working with a brilliant lawyer at, uh, at the Legal Defense Fund. Um, uh, and uh, we, we together wrote this, this brief. And that's, that's always been my focus, uh, and still is today. It's about the, what we, in the 60s and 70s, we used to call the struggle. So How you, do we make life better for African Americans? So you think, you say that you're a civil rights attorney? Uh, well, no, I, it's, it's, it's interesting. I was not a civil rights attorney. I'm just saying, but you, but you, but, you but I'm still all about civil, civil rights. rights. Okay. Yeah, I'm still all about, always was and always will be. I mean, that's what, you know, that's why I'm here. Um, working with Dr. Mendy. That's why I was working with Kathy Hambrick. Um, and I thank Alta for giving me the opportunity to do that. Um, but yeah, that's, um, 
that's, if you want to know what makes me tick, that, that's what it's about. I was president of the Black Student Alliance at Georgetown University in 1971. Ooh. And I remember my mother, when I told her that I'd just gotten elected president of the Black Student Alliance, she says, please don't burn down any buildings. <laughs> she saw that side, the oh, other yeah. side to you. Oh, I was a red, black, and green scarf, and yeah, I was the whole, oh, no, I was, I was the military. No, no, come with that. Oh, I, was, I had an afro out to here, yeah. That was me. I ain't gonna believe that. <laughs> I'm serious. He, he ain't gonna make me believe that. <laughs> but you believe in, in fighting for your rights. Oh, well, listen. Um, there were 30 black students in all the undergraduate schools my freshman year at Georgetown. 30? Out of 6,000 students. 23 of those 30 were in my class. Of those 23, eight of us graduated. And we walked into the president's office with a list of demands. Among those demands was we demanded that the university do a better job of retaining African-American students um, at the university. We demanded that they do a better job of um, recruiting African-American students. We demanded that there should be at least one African-American professor on the faculty. There was none. There were none. Uh, we demanded what, what, that. What year was this? This was 1970. Um, and we demanded that uh, we needed to see some, some more, because there was only one, uh, um, we needed to see some more black administrators. There was one black administrator who was uh, the uh, assistant director of admissions. Uh, there were no other, there were no, other, there were no black people on the faculty, no black people in the administration. Uh, and 30 black students out of 6,000 in all the undergraduate schools. I, I can look, that, that's the time that I, that I was in. Remember, I went to Georgetown as a freshman the year after the brothers took over the administration building at Cornell. So, you know, if you're black and you're in college, particularly at a predominantly white institution at that time, that's who you were going to be. Now, now, let's go back to your dad. Let's mm -hmm. go back to your dad. Dad was a bad boy. Oh uh, yeah, but he believed in justice, righteousness. But he didn't really buck the system. No, he didn't. So 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 where? He didn't. So where? He didn't. Well, you got that from your mom. Didn't you? I got that from my mom. <laughs> <laughs> I got that from my mom. Did you know that, or that just came out when you hit college? It just came out when I hit college. I mean, again, uh, my best friend and I were the only two black students in our graduating class in high school. And then I go to Georgetown, and there's like 30 black students in all the undergraduate schools. But for some reason, when I got Georgetown, got to Georgetown, I was awakened socially and politically. I will tell you that I have led many organizations um, in my life. Very rarely have I actually sought that leadership. I would say about 70 to 80 percent of the leadership roles that I've had, I've held because that leadership was thrust upon me. We talk about speaking truth to power. I learned that from my mother. <clears throat> she had no fear. I mean, she she would tell you exactly what she thought and she would dress you down in a heartbeat. You know, she'd be right and you'd know she was right. But, you know, she taught me that, look, everybody puts their pants on the same way that you do, one leg at a time. Mm -hmm. Speak truth to power. 
So that's what you learned. That's what I learned. So you had to learn to balance your hard work, commitment, dedication as from your dad. That intellectual analytical side comes from my dad. The passion comes from my mom. You went to a predominant all European high school. Mm -hmm. There was only three of you all, so maybe that kind of- Three of us in my class. We were 1,600 in the entire school. And of their 1,600, I think there were, let's see, there were two of us in my class. Uh, there were maybe two in the class ahead of us and one in the class above that. So there were less than, there were fewer than, you know, 10 African-Americans out of um, 1,600 in my high school. Yeah. And, you know, again, I didn't, there wasn't, there weren't any like, you know, really strong black folks, you know, uh, sort of bucking the system uh, at Malloy. Well, and then at that time, too, I mean, we didn't have a cri enough of a critical mass right. of people. Right, that's what I'm saying. So everybody just went with the flow. Everybody just went with the flow. I can tell you that in four years at Malloy, I don't ever re once remember feeling that, that I'd been discriminated against for any reason. Okay. Um, and part of the reason is because uh, of, of, of who the, the, the teachers and administrators were. I told you that Frank Rienzo was my high school and college track coach. Well, at Archbishop Malloy, we had two mottos on the track team. One was, it never rains or snows at Archbishop Malloy High School. And I'll tell you what the significance of that is in a minute. The other was, when you're not practicing, somebody else is. The significance of that never rains or snows is that our indoor track was outside. It was a track that was designed and built by the Maris brothers who taught at the school. And it was these huge, uh, it was in huge pieces. It took six guys to carry each piece. And at the beginning of, of the indoor season, we took these pieces out of the, the basement of the school and put them on the parking lot. It was a beautiful bank track, just like the one in Madison Square Garden. It was the same size, which was actually de designed right after the, the, the Madison Square Garden track, the old garden. There was only one day of the year that we did not practice. Even it could be, you know, snowstorm. Snow, you get the shovel, you shovel off the track, you get your butt out there and work out. And that was, when we, it took like, probably about an hour and a half to get all those pieces out and put them together on the track. And when we got that track together, then we worked out. There was only one day in four years of high school that we did not work out. And it was the day that Martin Luther King was killed. And Frank Rienzo, head track coach who became the head track coach at Georgetown and then the athletic director at Georgetown who hired Big John. He sat us all down. 300 guys, we had a huge team. I told you people hated us. I guess so you had 300 <laughs> athletes just on the track team? They hated us. We had 300 athletes on the track team. Um, he sat us all down and for about 90 minutes, he talked about race relations in the United States. That's the kind of school that I went to. I did not feel any kind of discrimination or anything. And I had this Italian coach who there weren't even enough 
of black people for it to really make a difference. But yet, this is what he compelled to do. The one day that we did not work out in four years of high school, it was because Martin Luther King was killed and he felt compelled to sit us all down and tell us what's wrong with this country and why uh, we need to do better. So one, one individual can't make a difference. Yes. I do want to tell one story about track athletics. You finally won a, won a race? <laughs> yeah, no, actually, I won a few. I won a few. I won a few. I won a few. It's just that my, my standards are so high because the athletes that I had the opportunity to, to, to run and work out with. But um, I said we were New York City champions 10 years in a row. I remember the first time I ran in the garden, it was in the New York City championships, indoor city championships. And the garden was packed. You could not find a seat. This was the high school championships, New York City high school championships. And we had a lot of fans. But that number of fans that we had were overwhelmed if you combined all the other fans from all the other schools. So um, you get in there and all of a sudden you hear this chant by all of the fans from all the other schools and they're chanting in unison, beat Malloy, beat Malloy, beat Malloy. So they were all together. Yeah, that's how much they hated us. No. But here's the thing, our fans were chanting back so it was like, beat Malloy, if you can, beat Malloy, if you can, beat Malloy, if you can. That was pretty good. So what do you do? You step out onto the track and you run the fastest race of your life. And guess what? They can't beat Malloy. They lost again. That's a pretty good story. Yeah. So they were talking about beat Malloy and young people talk about if you can. And they could not. Nope. They were 10 so Listen, this, this, is, I, this was 1969 to seven, I mean, 1965 to 69 when I was in high school, right? We had 10 guys who could run under two minutes in the half mile. Okay. So we would, we would win the, the, the two mile relay so, so and we would come in second or third in the two mile so, relay. So, so y'all get parts everywhere. Yeah, most we had the same thing with quarter miles. We had a bunch of quarter miles. We, and we would very often not only win the mile relay, but we'd also come in third in the mile relay. And probably just dominate the field too. Huh? Dominate the field. So I mean, that many athletes though. Cross country was ridiculous because you know, cross country they give out 25 medals. I remember there was one meet, it was like the Queens Championships, you know, Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan. It was the Queens Championships. Out of the 25 medals, we won 18 of them. Well, Beat Malloy, if why, you I, can. I see why they hate you. I mean, and this went on for 10 years. Yeah. Y'all dominated for 10 years yep. straight. Yep. Not, no break in between. Nope. Just a wonderful time. You're a pleasant man to be around. No, thank you. A pleasant you. man to talk to. And uh, you know, I learned a little bit more about linguistics. Now, what's the difference between linguistics and uh, the, the Entomology of oh, entomology. Well, uh, entomology is a part of linguistics. Um, entomology is the study of the history of words. Oh, that's what. Yeah. 
So, so it's like, what's the origin of a particular so that's word? The found, the etymology is the foundation yeah. of the word. Yeah. Linguistic is just what the word is yeah, doing. For, for example, um, um, we have many words in English that really derive from Latin, right? So that's part of the etymology, that this word really came from Latin. Now, now, now you got to tell me, where did Latin derive from? Well, um, that's a good question. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I don't know how to, how to actually, um, how to answer that question, um, because I don't want to, because I am a linguist, I don't want to misspeak. Um, and so don't, don't it's, it's, not, it's not something that I've studied. No, but, so. but, 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 you know, there's room for error. Yeah, so we well, just, you know, just, yeah, just, just yeah. give us some information. But, uh, the, but the, 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 the actual fact is that uh, all language changes over time. Right. Um, and so, uh, at some point, there was one language, um, and then as people began to scatter, different other languages would develop. Because you know, when you're, it's, it's like here in the United States, I can tell you sort of where somebody's from by the way that they speak. Mm -hmm. You know, you can tell um, whether somebody's from the South, whether they're from the North, whether they're from the Northeast. Um, whether they're from Brooklyn, <laughs> um, whether they're from, from uh, you know, Boston, um, you can tell by uh, not only uh, the accent, but also the, the specific words they use or the idiomatic expressions that they use. Um, because language changes as people disperse and they have different experiences, um, they, they begin to, their language becomes a little bit different from someone else's language. And if you go far enough back in, in history, you'll find that, you know, the languages converge. And if you go far enough into the future, you'll find that at some point, these two languages are no longer mutually um, intelligible. Well, you know, the dilemma that, that we have as a people, though, is that the words that we are familiar with come from Greek, Roman, English. Yeah. And now we still, we don't, I, we did never leave from that. That's right. That, That's that, right. That, 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 what do you call that again? Entomology. Entomology. Yeah. Learning and yeah. training. That's right. That's right. That's right. And so, for example, you've got um, all of these uh, languages, they are language families, um, which is to say that uh, they're, for example, the Romance languages, of which English is one. So you have uh, a lot of commonalities among the Romance languages, English, French, Spanish. And so you'll find a number of words that um, are cognates. They sound the same, even though they may have a different meaning. Um, or the way that, that we approach language, uh, there are some commonalities because um, they come from the same root language. Mm -hmm. Now, you still haven't had, had answered about Latin, but we're going to go ahead on. Well, Latin, you were talking about Ro Roman. Latin actually is Roman. The, the Latin is what the Romans spoke. No, no, Roman spoke Latin. Yes. Okay. Yes. So now, what my question is, how do a brother Russia. How do a brother speak Russia? Well, as a linguist, I have to correct you on one thing. I'm fluent in English. 
I'm conversant in Russian and French. I would not claim fluent <laughs> fluence in Russian. Conversant, that's supposed to be all it's <laughs> it means speak I can, it up. If I can speak it, I can interact with people, I can have a conversation, but uh, I, I don't have the same mastery of Russian that I do of English. But you can, you can communicate with somebody. Oh yeah, I can communicate All right, with them, no problem. For most of us, you flew. Yeah, if I were to meet somebody <laughs> on the street, I could have no problem having and, a conversation. And, and how do you desire uh, interest in wanting to even learn Russian? Well, um, as I indicated uh, earlier, um, I learned uh, at an early age that I had inherited my dad's sort of knack for language. That's right, he spoke seven languages. Yeah, he spoke seven languages, and um, he was always um, uh, in the summers away on some fellowship, uh, the National Defense Education Act uh, fellowship um, for um, teachers, language teachers. Um, and he'd bring back, you know, remember those big reel-to-reel um, <laughs> yes, uh, tapes? He'd bring back some of those. Um, he'd bring back records in other languages. Uh, and so I heard these languages, and one of them was Russian. And so I would try to make the same sounds, and I was able to do it as I indicated, a, a linguistic chameleon, but I, I'm also, I have this gift where I can mimic virtually any sound. To make a long story short, I studied French uh, in high school. At the end of my junior year, uh, they decided to teach Russian for the first time, and they handpicked what they thought were the best 23, 23 of the best language students uh, in the class, um, out of like 386 guys, and uh, I was one of those and I ended up getting the highest grade in the, in the course. <laughs> the highest um, grade. But um, so I actually got into Georgetown as a French major and then changed my major to Russian as soon as I got there because I had had this experience studying Russian. And uh, as a, again, this was 1969 when I graduated from high school. Of course, uh, the Soviet Union was going full force and uh, relations between the United States and the Soviet Union were sort of the interest of everybody in the world. Still is. Still is. Um, and so I got this interest in Russian, ended up double majoring in Russian and linguistics when I got to Georgetown. Have you been to Russia? No. No. And that's the reason why I did not get the degree in Russian, degrees in linguistics. I was supposed to get a dual degree in Russian and linguistics, but I didn't get the degree in Russian because the year that I should have gone to Russia, um, there were strained relations well, between it, the United it, it, States and Russia, and uh, I couldn't find money to go over there. My dad couldn't afford. I'll never forget the tuition. It was $2,700 to go over there for a semester, and uh, he just didn't have it. My folks just didn't have $2,700. This is 1969, so $2,700 was a lot of money. Right, right. And that's what it cost. And, um, so uh, I wasn't able to, able to study in Russia, uh, in Russian, in Russia. And so I, I elected not to, not to take the, uh, my oral comprehensives in Russian. I only took them in linguistics. You were looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. Now, was it And I've not had, since then, not had an occasion to, to be in Russia. But you still can speak Russian. I still can speak Russian. So what, uh, what opportunity do you have to speak Russian? Well, you know, you run into people here and there, especially like in restaurants or uh, cab drivers sometimes. So you look forward um, to it. Friends with uh, relatives who are Russian. 
Um, and yes, I do look forward to it because it's an opportunity to. Uh, so what, what do most Russians say when they see a brother? Oh, <laughs> well, brother. you know, it's it's interesting. Americans don't know this, but there's actually a significant black population in Russia. Oh, I, Alexander yeah. Pushkin was black. Now, who was Alexander? Pushkin? Uh, he was the uh, one of the the foremost poets in Russian history, poets and writers, um, and he was black. And this was from the time of uh, Peter the Great. Speak a little Russian for uh, help us out. What? You know, well, if I met somebody, I would say Zdrasti. Uh Bless you too. <laughs> that actually means hello. Hey, what'd you say again? Zdrasti. That's with a T. Zdrasti. Okay. And then I might say, um, "How are you?" And, uh, and then, and then when I say that, inevitably they'll say back to me. Do you speak Russian? And then I might say, Yeah, a little bit. Okay. Okay, that's all, it sounds really, you're making it sound a little, a little more enthused, <laughs> a little more excited now. <laughs> then what, when, you hear, when you hear it, old TVs have a little more harder. You know, the Germans and the Russians got like a uh, force, it's kind of forceful. Well, I mean, it depends on the situation, it depends on who's interacting. Um, just like any other language. That's okay. Okay, but uh, you know you don't you don't hear or feel that force when you're just meeting someone on the street. But even um, even when I'm hearing it, like you know, some of, you know, a lot of people say the Africans are that way. Too, yeah, you know? yeah. And of course, that also depends on what part of Africa. Yeah, you're that's true. And too. what language yeah. you speak. And but it's always been when you know when the when the Russia or the Germans you know like it's just always been a more and but when you 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 know you sound pretty good I wish I knew what you were saying I'm just take your word you ain't, you ain't calling me no names or calling me out of my name or you now, now what do you like about being able to speak besides being one of the few brothers <laughs> you're in a class all by yourself basically you can speak the language what what are some things you appreciate or like about the language. Actually, one of the things is that uh, not a lot of black folks speak Russian. <laughs> well, we know that. You know, um, I, um, I, 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 I didn't learn how to um, do the electric slide for a long, long time. You got left behind. Because, because if everybody else does it, it's probably true that I don't. Do oh, it. okay. And so I like being different. I, I like having something that's a little bit different about me than, than most other people, uh, can be said about most other people. Um, in addition to that, the literature is just incredible. My favorite, one of my favorite authors uh, of all time, the, the author of uh, Crime and Punishment, uh, Anna Karenina, um, it's uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky, um, *Crime and Punishment* was one of the most, most one of the most important things that I've ever read in my life. The, I love the way that he develops characters, um, and that's part of the reason why his novels are so long, uh, because he really takes time to develop characters, um, and he tells stories that make you sort of feel things. Um, and so, Dostoevsky is one of my one of my favorite favorite authors. Now, can you read Russia? Of course. You can read. Yeah, and the write? first. I mean, if you're going to study Russian, the first thing you've got to do is learn how to read Russian. So you can write it. Yeah, the Cyrillic alphabet. Yes. No, hold on. Now, sometimes people, a lot of people I know speak French, but they can't read or write <laughs> French. You know, but I forgot you educated. 
So you have to make sure that yeah, you have to find. I studied Russian for four things. years at one of the top uh, <clears throat> language programs in the country. So yeah. Now, by you having this ability to speak Russian, it, to me, like your value should have went up that much more. They didn't. See, I didn't recruit. See, I didn't recruit you to come on. Yeah, they did. <laughs> I wasn't interested. <laughs> you were not. No. I did not want to work for the CIA. What? It just was not in keeping with my being focused on the struggle. Um, that, 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 that would have been their struggle. Yeah. That wouldn't have been your struggle. Exactly. Oh, okay. Then. So, I was not. I was recruited. But uh, I declined. They come back again? Because they ain't too many brothers. <laughs> no, they didn't. They, 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 knew didn't. You were, they knew you were serious. Yeah, then. yeah. Plus, the other thing is that I was president of Black Student Alliance. So my name was probably on that list that they, they had they of, <laughs> of folks that, uh, you know, they, they maybe looked at a little bit suspect. Yeah, but they don't care. <laughs> they don't, anything else you want to say about Russia? Um, that, you, that was interesting you, interest you? I don't, can't think of anything right now. Um, I, I will say one thing that uh, there's a difference between, just as there's a difference between the United States government and Americans, everyday Americans, a big difference between the Russian government and the Russian people. Um, I found the Russian people that I've met to be really warm, engaging people. I don't believe that Putin actually is representative of the Russian people. So you're gonna run the same problem. You're gonna say the same thing about Trump. <laughs> Except in his case. <laughs> so you give, you give, you give the people and say, well, you know, Trump. Except, except in his case, the the people who, you know, I I I have this thing. I say that there are only three kinds of Trumpists: dupes. Fools and opportunists. Huh? That's it. There's no way that you can, you know, support that man unless you've been conned or hustled, as we say in New York. You're just a complete moron, or you see an opportunity f for money and power. So you sound like my other partner. <laughs> and that way, you it doesn't matter to you what's true or not. Or not. As uh, long as you get that power, that, that's all you can. It's all those members of Congress who, if you get them one-on-one, -on -one, will tell you they can't stand this guy. But they ain't going to say, gonna that, say that, that in public. So he, he done put fear in a lot of yeah. people. Yeah. All right, my brother. But I want to thank uh, my dear friend and brother, uh, Brother Coney Louis for letting us stop by today and visit with him and uh, got a chance to share a little bit about his life story. But I'm telling you that he, he didn't get 10% of it. <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, we, we wanted to get as much as we can, let him share. He, he, you'd be a great storyteller. I must say Thank too. you. So you would be a good preacher too, though. I so appreciate you, you, that. You would be a, good, a great preacher. But we want to thank you for joining us today on Count Time. Uh, thank you for passing through Louisiana on your way back to Georgetown, and uh, not Georgetown, to D.C. And uh, we truly thank you for your insight. And welcome to, uh, and thank you for joining us at Count Time today. Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Man can shock the hand. Man can shackle the feet, but only you can shackle the mind. 
the mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time. <laughs>